Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Spawn, written by Donald F. Glutt. A science terror story by the author of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. He was trapped on a planet of deadly dinosaurs that made Jurassic Park seem like a kid's playground. For one thing, they were smarter than the average dinosaur. The Marshall Museum sent Jean Bishop on a simple mission to the distant world of Aragon to collect dinosaur eggs for the museum's spectacular Dino World Park, a scrupulous recreation of the Mesozoic era on Earth. Bishop figured it as a quick in and out, swoop down, grab some eggs, and be gone. But he figured wrong. When one of the indigenous women, Leah, who had spent her whole life fleeing from the gigantic macabre creatures, tried to set Bishop right, he ignored her. The Terran simply could not believe what she was trying to tell him, that there was one terrifying difference between Aragon's dinosaurs and their extinct Earth brethren. The Aragon dinos were intelligent and horror and destruction were sure to follow if the eggs were taken back to Earth and allowed to breed. But Bishop had too much at stake, both fame and fortune, to want to believe her. Some people have to learn the hard way, and for Bishop what happened next was a lesson that could cost him his life and much more. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Spawn. Chapter 1 The J-17 orbited the planet just outside the Van Allen bands and the atmospheric shell. Inside the ship, part of the crew were busy taking star sights and coordinating navigational data with old charts and tables made by the exploration mission some twenty subjective years before. The remainder were analyzing the planet below. This was the second visit to this world. The first was an exploratory party that had landed twenty years earlier to investigate planets with Earth-like environments. Benton Daka, who captained one of the survey ships, had, with his legendary modesty, named most of his discoveries after himself. Since the names were temporary and would be changed by the Nomenclature Commission, it made no difference, and possibly one of the ten worlds called Daka that he had discovered would be named after him, which would give him an immortality that most of his contemporaries didn't think he deserved. This world was DACA-7. Commander Gene Bishop, skipper of the space freighter J-17, couldn't recall exactly when Benton DACA had landed on the surface of this planet, seventh in his chain of self-named worlds, and it didn't matter to him, for he cared little about such history. His interests lay with his duties surface conditions, periods of rotation, and landing areas. But he did remember learning of DACA-7 during the first month of an extraterrestrial biology course at Stanford, before he went to prep for Space Command at Academy. DACA-7, he recalled, was similar to Earth as it had been in the Mesozoic era. His Stanford professor had been delighted with the data Benton DACA had brought back, and Bishop puzzled at the man's interest, since it was already axiomatic that Earth-like environments produced Earth-like ecologies. It wasn't until later, until this voyage, in fact, that he'd realized Dr. David Grimsby had been thinking about DACA-7 as a world with potential for colonization. 
Grimsby was the scientific director of this mission, and he and his wife, Diane, were the VIP civilians for whom the J-17 had crossed parsecs of interstellar space. Grimsby had been the last person Bishop would have expected to see aboard his ship, but the professor, like Bishop, had come up in the world and was now an authority on the newly discovered planets. Bishop had commanded spacecraft for nearly a decade now and was considered one of the best men in the United States space fleet. He had been bossing freighters in the government service since his second command, and the J-17 was the latest in a series of ships that had gotten progressively larger, faster, and more sophisticated. Those picked for his crews considered themselves lucky, for Bishop had the much-envied reputation of never losing a crew member to disease or accident. Only three people had ever died while serving under him, one woman executed for crimes on Alboria and two men kidnapped by the predatory humanoid females on La Sorge. Neither could be called Bishop's fault. His reputation for luck, and it was true that commanders needed their share of it, grew so large that some claimed his first and middle initials, G.A. for Jean Arthur, stood for Guardian Angel. Bishop, naturally, was proud of the confidence his crews had in him and did his best to keep his confidence, as well as the reputation that had fostered it, intact. He stood in front of the center view screen now, a blue-eyed, ruddy-faced, yellow-haired Viking of the new school. A thousand years earlier he would have been the same, except that the school would have been different, and he would have worn his hair long and in braids. A big, wide, muscular man, harsh of voice and quick of movement, there was violence in him, but it seldom surfaced. He was an obvious leader. That much had been recognized all through his training, well-grounded in space technology and accustomed to the responsibilities of command. The crew, except for pilot officer Jeffrey Chalfin and second astrogator Cassandra Weklos, thought he was God Almighty, and Bishop did little to discourage such thought. In fact, he took pride in it, and it smoothed out situations which under another commander might have become somewhat ugly. Jeff, however, considered him a friend, and what Cassandra thought was impossible to tell. By long-standing custom, the skipper of his space bucket raided a mistress, and Cassandra filled that role as well as she filled the responsibilities of second astrogator, in an exceptionally competent manner. Chalfin was at the controls, he had known Bishop for nearly a decade and had managed to like him for most of that time. His leathery face squeezed out a thin smile as he watched his skipper check the landing programs. There was no resentment in the grin. With his last-minute checks, old G.A. was simply living up to his nickname. Okay, Jeff, Bishop said, looking up from the program. Take her down. Chalfin nodded, checked his coordinates, and put the J-17 into a standard orbital approach. As the ship slipped into the approach corridor, he turned on the landing computer and followed the approach procedures on the manual keyboard as the computer executed the program. The ship rotated on its gyros until it was running stern-first down the corridor. Flame boomed from the main drive as the speed was killed and gravity took charge. From there on, it was routine. The ship came down, balanced on its jets, and sank softly to a clean landing, on a rocky outcropping at the edge of a gently sloping meadow. Nearby flowed a fair-sized river. Doctors Diane and David Grimsby came into the control room as soon as the landing was stabilized and the jets turned off. 
They seemed a perfect team, both in their late forties or early fifties, and at the height of their mental powers. It was, however, difficult to determine precisely how old they might be, since there were thousands of aids to stimulate and stimulate youth in Earth's pharmacopoeia. Bishop had guessed early fifties at the beginning of the voyage, but had since decided it didn't really make much difference. The pair had a prestigious reputation as vertebrate paleontologists, and mutual interest, mutual respect, and mutual levels of intelligence all combined to make their marriage work in an age when very few did. Bishop had envied them, slightly, since the first, and knew that if he ever married, it would be to secure a relationship such as the Grimsby's had. As skipper of a J-class space freighter, he had little opportunity to pursue marriage, but he decided that after this trip, hopefully his last, he would give the idea a bit more consideration. There was little doubt that this was his last trip, for a spacer, at age 30, was considered ready for retirement. Since he had no leanings whatever toward administration, he was going to phase out and go on the beach. Then, perhaps, a wife. Even though he did envy the Grimsby's, he knew the regulations against marriage for personnel were strict and probably necessary. He had never even thought of questioning the regulations. Besides, there were the usual outlets for the human libido. Bishop forced his mind back to the Grimsby's. They were representatives of both the Marshall Museum Exploratory Foundation, which had chartered this mission, and the Bureau of Parks, which had sponsored it. Their instructions had been to find and bring back dinosaurs. Grimsby's, Bishop started. I've got a lizard on the starboard screen. Like to see it? There was no need for an answer as David and Diane turned toward the screen. Their smiles of expectancy replied suitably. As they stood, staring at the ten meters of bipedal toothy horror framed in the center of the starboard view screen, the smiles were replaced by the cold, hard interest typical of scientific types. The biped showed on the viewscreen was moving through the tall grass of the meadow outside, stopping occasionally to bend over and pluck a small animal from the grass, carrying the helpless prey to its lipless jaws before biting once, swallowing, and resuming its search for other tidbits. About the size of a dog, David Grimsby mused aloud, beagle-sized or so. Must take a lot of them to keep that fellow full. Diane shivered, uncharacteristically for one in her professional capacity. I've never liked carnivores. They're necessary, I suppose, but- They keep the population in balance, that's for sure, David interrupted her, smiling at her momentary shiver. Then, look, there, he's got another one. Look at that, they don't even struggle, no resistance at all. Probably frozen with fear, Diane said. I bloody well would be. David chuckled without looking at his wife. His dark eyes remained on the screen, a wide grin planted itself on his face. Diane, looking at him, was reminded of nothing so much as a little boy grabbing and opening the first present he'd found beneath a traditional glassite Christmas tree. Astounding, David mumbled with enthusiasm, his analytical mind clicking facts into place as he watched the creature on the viewscreen. Asarian, and from all appearances related to Alasaurus, don't you think, Diane? Uh-huh. His relatives aside, imagine his appetite. That's the fourth dog creature he's eaten, and he doesn't show any signs of filling up. Probably hides in some dark spot to digest, Bishop interjected. David ran his fingers through his shock of unruly brown hair. Jean, he said with a touch of awe in his voice, his head moving slowly from side to side. You'll probably never have the feeling I have right now. 
Undoubtedly correct, Bishop decided. The scientist's eyes had yet to leave the image of the bird-footed horror on the viewscreen, and his expression echoed joy at having found such specimens and witnessing them in their natural habitat. I don't doubt it a bit, Bishop answered. Then, as an unsettling thought occurred to him, he asked, You don't mean to take that thing back, do you? David chuckled at the barely noticeable tinge of fear in Bishop's voice. No, only its eggs. We'll hatch them at the foundation. Mind you, it would be nice to have a living Allosaurus, but I'd rather have a Zabriskan Fontema, Bishop interrupted. They're just as stupid as that thing, but at least they're cute, which is more than I can say for your Allosaurus. Bishop's mention of the Zabriskan Fontema was an unintended reminder to the others present that he had seen a great deal in his short, subjective life. He had visited the planet the French had discovered, Nouveau-Afrique, that resembled Africa when that continent still contained animal life. And there was the planet with the islands not unlike the Galapagos of Earth, where big marine lizards basked in the sun. They were similar to earthly iguanas, except, of course, for the pineal eye, which was still functional. And there was the mentioned Zabriska and a hundred more. Jeff Chalfin, who had been listening, cut into the conversation. You're getting a little bland, Skipper. Probably been in space too long. He was ribbing now. What you need is a nice long rest and retirement pay. Don't rush me, Bishop told him. Then Diane smiled. You've seen more than we ever will, she said. So that's probably why you don't feel the excitement a couple of old fossil hunters like David and I. You mean old fossils, David interrupted, smiling, his eyes still on the view screen. A couple of old fossil hunters like David and I do, Diane repeated, finishing her statement without further interruption. Because we've been trying to piece together Earth's entire prehistory from incomplete fragments of bone for years, this moment is sheer ecstasy to us. This is our first opportunity, the first any paleontologist has ever had, for that matter, to observe living dinosaurs, David explained, touches of joy and wonder mingled together in his voice. And it doesn't matter that these saurians aren't quite the same as those that ruled our Mesozoic. They're close enough. Bishop didn't need to be a paleontologist to understand the jubilation of the Grimsbys. By the year 2149, when the J-17 left Earth for Daca 7, virtually all Earth's animal life had become extinct or was housed in zoos. Perhaps because man was the dominant life form, animal extinction had been inevitable. Oh, the domesticated animals, the horses, the ever-faithful dogs, the ever-faithless cats, rabbits, guinea pigs, mice, and countless species of tropical fish were still doing well under the pampering and care of their masters and owners, but the wild terrestrial animals, the beasts of the forests, hills, and jungles, were gone. The only exceptions were those few that persisted in tightly closed and vigilantly patrolled wilderness areas. Wildlife was a fading memory now, as unreal as the legendary dinosaurs. There were still birds and fish, but the animals, the beautiful, graceful, free animals, were gone. So Bishop didn't have to be an analytical scientist to appreciate the small-brained predator on the viewscreen as it stalked a bloody path across the meadow. Bishop had seen the faces of children and adults alike as they crowded and pushed through such famous wildlife parks as Africa World and Asia World to observe alien fauna that were similar to long-extinct Earth species. They could imagine what it had been once like in their own world, and it brought nostalgia and a conviction that if men had another chance, they'd do better the second time around. 
No one was too concerned with accuracy to complain that the lions of Africa world had tiger stripes or that elephants of Asia world had two sets of tusks. In a world starved of animals, a little imagination and a smidgen of acceptance worked wonders. And now there were dinosaurs. Upon completion of this mission, there would be Dino World, the latest wildlife park. The J-17 would transport fauna and flora to grace the newest and greatest of tourist attractions, and it was the Grimsby's assignment to select and secure the dinosaur eggs for incubation back on Earth. When the mission was accomplished, Bishop would be promoted to curator, how he detested that title, of Dino World. Thirty-one was wash-up age for ship commanders, and the space service took care of its retired personnel. He could at last relax from the time-devouring flights that had claimed his last ten subjective, nearly fifty objective, years. Once again, Bishop would call the Earth home. He could marry and enjoy life with a woman who knew how to give and share rather than the one like Cassandra who took and enjoyed. Yet this was unkind of him, he realized, for he took and enjoyed. Actually, they took from each other in acts that were a kind of mutual theft. Bishop fantasized a little as he waited for the laboratory reports on the livability of this world. Daka had said it was three-plus, which meant that no spacesuits or protective devices were needed, but Bishop trusted no lab but his own. If the index were below three-minus, he didn't want his people out in it without protection. But that wasn't the subject on his mind. He was daydreaming of a luxury office with simulated wood furniture and thick synthawool carpets, completely equipped with the latest computers and a few sleek and attractive girls to run them. He dreamed of exotic food and drink, of soft lights and music, of civilization and lovely women. Chalfin shattered the dream. We're ready to open up, sir, the pilot said. Lab reports the index is just under four. It's as near as Earth as you can get. A little too much sulfur, a little too much water vapor, but nothing harmful. Shorts and insect repellent. Hallelujah. Jeff Chalfin and Cassandra Weklos were among the six crew members who accompanied David and Diane Grimsby and Jean Bishop outside the J-17. They stood approximately 30 meters from the freighter and examined this lush paradise. Paradise? Bishop wondered. Certainly it was no Eden for the dog-like animals the Saurian had eaten. Where was that Saurian? Moved off to digest? He didn't know, but at any rate, it wasn't in sight. He stretched and savored the fresh air and physical freedom, satisfied that this planet had a breathable atmosphere and a bearable temperature. Swarms of insects circled at respectful distances from the repellent-coated crew members, causing Bishop to ask Cassandra, Think they'd bite if we didn't have the repellent? She rubbed her bare arms. Probably, she shrugged but I don't think I'll make any experiments to find out for sure. Besides, I'm not too nuts about getting in and out of those lousy protection suits. The repellent fits fine. Bishop chuckled. Neither of the Grimsbys were interested in the banter. Their attention was riveted on the beauties of Daka 7, where sharply etched mountains rose from the misty plain, where distant volcanoes belched smoke and ash to partially obscure the twin suns, where lush green jungle and incredibly lovely flowers blended into a tapestry of kaleidoscopic color. Beautiful as it was, however, the Grimsbys were not observing the terrain and the flora with the intensity of interest they observed the animals. Plesiosaurus, David exclaimed in wonder, noticing the intruders suddenly. 
Coming toward them from the direction of the river was a group of five Saurians. Welcoming committee, Bishop snapped. Draw and charge blasters. Load rifles. As the monsters approached the landing party, the men checked their weapons and moved back to the entrance of the spaceship. The group of Saurians was an odd assortment, a duckbill, a mid-sized marsh grazer Bishop thought of as a brontosaurus, a ceratopsia, the lizard equivalent of a rhinoceros, and two bipedal, frog-faced, toothy horrors even larger than the Allosaurus Bishop's people had seen on the monitor screen. Bishop drew his blaster and checked the charge, satisfied to find it fully loaded. He nodded absently to himself and transferred his attention to the Saurians, which had stopped approximately fifty meters away to observe the humans. The, they're all wrong, Diane Grimsby said, the immediacy of the danger overruled by her professional interest. Three of them are herbivores. So what? Bishop asked. They're all bloody dinosaurs, aren't they? Of that, of course, there was no doubt. Any schoolchild could have determined that. In a strange way he couldn't quite comprehend, Bishop saw the group as a committee. Yes, they are, Diane said slowly, but their behavior is wrong. Carnosaurs and herbivores shouldn't be standing side by side. I don't think Dinoworld visitors will complain, David said, choosing to ignore the contradictions before him as he remembered his official capacity on this journey. They're impressive, and they look ferocious. They may be as ferocious as they look, Bishop said with a cautious edge to his voice. I don't want to be without a line of retreat, so keep your eyes open. Come off it, Skipper, Chalfin said, chuckling. Those overgrown lizards are as uncertain as we are. There's no sign of trouble. So far, Bishop added. He looked at the crew, satisfied to see them armed and alert as he had ordered. Even Cassandra looked efficient with a blaster in hand. Perhaps Chalfin was right, Bishop reflected, but he wasn't taking any chances. He didn't relish the thought of opening fire on the Saurians, but if he had to, he wouldn't hesitate. Especially since the size of the airlock would prevent the entire group from entering the ship in a single group if the beasts did charge. Diane and Cassandra, get into the ship, Bishop ordered, his decision made, cautious and careful as always. You too, David. The rest of you set for maximum charge, minimum aperture. If you have to fire, aim for their heads, the leader first. In any case, don't fire until I give the word. That's an order. Diane and David Grimsby, along with Cassandra Weklos, had started toward the airlock, moving backwards, their eyes still on the group of Saurians. Leaping lizards, Chalfin said softly to no one in particular. Someone laughed. There had been a resurrection of Little Orphan Annie cartoons on video just before they'd left Earth, and the Moppet's favorite expression had been on everyone's lips, which was not surprising, considering the nature of the mission. Shut up, Bishop ordered, not finding the expression particularly amusing in light of their present circumstances. Then, almost as if attracted by Bishop's voice, one of the Saurians moved. Ponderously, yet with an odd grace, the others followed toward Bishop and his command. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Spawn. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.